One of the other struggles that we all face at the moment is disconnection, not just from people, but disconnection from routine and from institutions. Um, obviously, as a church, our Sunday morning routine has been messed up, right? You had a time to get up, a time to have breakfast. You better be in the shower by a certain time, out the door, and on your way here. And we all have different time frames for that. Um, but then when we didn't have to go anywhere, the routine, the place, it was all changed. For those of you brave souls here at 8.30, it's all changed again. For many of us, our workplaces and our daily routines, Monday to Friday, have also changed. The, not just the routine, but the place we go, the people we see have changed. Maybe it's something like the time that you go on family vacation or the place you go for family vacation every year. You can't do that this year. And I think, obviously, nowhere do we see this lack of stability any more than we do in the current um, conversations about what to do about school restarting and schools reopening. And um, we have what Rochester City was going to be in person, and then it's not in person, and everybody's scrambling for, for what to do. And I know Greece is a hybrid model of half the class on Monday and Thursday and the other half on Tuesday and Friday and every town kind of doing their own thing and, and so it's, it's for, for parents that are used to you know shooing the kids out the door to school and the kids on that routine are catching the bus and, and whatever that might look like now there's not even that you know in the for the next for the foreseeable future and, and so it seems like when you say, well, there must be a solution to this, at least in the schools, it seems there's no good solution, right? I mean, you don't go to school, which hopefully minimizes risk of catching a virus, but you stay home and now there's all sorts of other childcare complications and learning complications um, that, that just there just doesn't seem like a good solution. And so in all these areas of our lives, it can feel like we're adrift. And that's the word that I'm using for this sermon series over the next month. Today, I'm mostly going to be setting the scene, not delving deep into the text, because I want to draw our connection between our feeling of being adrift and the experience of the Jews in Babylonian captivity. I think there's a lot that we can learn from them. The vast majority of the Old Testament, if you um, sort of summarize the whole thing, concerns the people of God, the children of Israel, finding anchors, okay? finding stability in their land, cementing their relationship with God. And, and so they're on this quest to find security, to find stability. 
And over time, Israel, sure enough, grows from one man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah. And, and it grows from Abraham and Sarah wandering around the promised land with just living as nomads, taking their herds to wherever the next green grass is. From, from that beginning to becoming a, a nation, a significant nation, Nation established in the land with a king, uh, with a city, uh, Jerusalem, with a, a glorious temple that people could admire, and with the respect, maybe not the admiration, maybe people didn't like them, but at least with the respect of their neighboring nations round about. And so from this nomadic small number to a well-established large number, and, and so if you begin at Genesis and you go all the way through to the end of Kings, end of Chronicles, that's really what it's about and, and their relationship with God in, in all of that. But, but from that pinnacle, really under David and Solomon, there in Jerusalem, they begin a, a decline, uh, a political, an economic, a military decline as their power Erodes, and their power erodes, we're told, because they stopped worshipping God, because they began worshipping idols. And so, even in their decline, however, they still have the land, they still have the city, and they still have God's law. Three things on which they can sort of identify. Three anchors that they can come back to when times are rough. Now, during the centuries of decline into ungodliness, Yahweh sends prophets to his people. He sends prophets and um, their message is to call the people back to God, to remind them of the relationship, to remind them of the time and the reason that they were blessed as a nation. And their warning is that if they continue on this trajectory of ungodliness, they will lose their land. They will lose their city. They will lose their temple. They, they are threatened with exile, with being taken into a foreign country, being made to serve other kings. And when the nation refuses to listen to the prophets, that's exactly what happens. Babylon comes and attacks Jerusalem, destroys it, knocks down its walls, guts the temple, takes everything that's valuable back to Babylon, takes the people that are valuable back to Babylon, leaving the uneducated and the, the menial workers there to eke out a subsistence living in the rubble that was once the great city of Jerusalem. When the Israelites are taken in chains back to Babylon, they found themselves adrift. No king, no country, and no temple. Still the law, still the covenant. But remember, they're in this situation because they broke that covenant. So that still puts them in a difficult place. 
Now the Israelites, as they are dragged kicking and screaming to Babylon, face the same questions that any immigrant faces in coming to a new country. How should they respond to being part of a new culture? Should they um, adopt the language of the new country? Should they adopt the holidays of the new country? Should they continue to keep their language, to keep their heritage, to keep their holidays from the old country? Um, how could, do they keep them both? Do they just keep one set or the other set? How do they manage this? What do they teach their children? On top of that, the Jews face questions about religion. When they come to Babylon, they've come to a pagan city where the holidays are, are um, holidays for the gods. And Israel um, has to decide. You know, we're being brought here does that mean God doesn't exist anymore? Does that mean the God we worshipped was weak, was fake, was not real? Does it mean the Babylonian gods are stronger than our gods? Why would we even try to, to worship Yahweh anymore? And so they have this fundamental question of whether or not they will believe that Yahweh is still truly God. So today I want to look at, at the situation of these people in Babylon who are adrift without any anchors, attempting to establish a new life for themselves in a new place. But I want to look at it through the eyes of the prophets. And we're going to look at a different prophet each week, or, or a person each week in, in the coming month. And I want to begin today with Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a prophet in Jerusalem. And he was the prophet in Jerusalem before Jerusalem was destroyed. He warned the kings that this was coming. He was a prophet in Jerusalem during the siege of Jerusalem. And it was a terrible siege where, where cannibalism, people resorted to cannibalism in order to stay alive. Children were fought over for their nutritional value, if you can imagine. It's a terrible state of affairs. And Jeremiah is representing God in the middle of that. And then the, the city falls and the, the, the elite, the educated, are taken to Babylon and Jeremiah remains in the ruins of Jerusalem. And you think, oh, well, these people are leaderless. Now they'll surely listen to Jeremiah. And in fact, they do at one point come to Jeremiah and say, Jeremiah, what should we do? And he says, we'll do whatever you tell us. He says, stay in Jerusalem. Stay here. God can rebuild. God can care and protect for us. They're like, well, we know what we said about doing whatever you told us, but we're going to go to Egypt and we're going to kidnap you and take you with us. And so then Jeremiah is in Egypt and he continues to prophesy from Egypt. It's a long prophetic career. And it's one that at every turn, Jeremiah failed. Nobody listened to him. Nothing changed. But he was consistent with his message. Consistent 
with his ministry, consistent with his relationship and trust in God. Mostly he was doom and gloom. He would say, bad things are going to happen because you're doing bad things. He pointed out sin. He made enemies. He predicted destruction. He received physical persecution. But he never gave up speaking for God. So I want to go back to those Jews living in Babylon. They face this great dilemma that, as I said, really all immigrants face, but maybe particularly for them in regards to religion. The first is the first option they had was that they could simply assimilate into Babylonian culture. They could decide to dress as Babylonians. They could learn the language and speak as Babylonians. They could celebrate Babylonian holidays. They could marry Babylonians. And perhaps over time, they or their children would come to be thought of as Babylonians. And that is probably the path of least resistance. So certainly a great temptation there. Or they could take the second option. They could withdraw. Instead of assimilating, they could separate. And they could withdraw into their own holy huddle and maintain their unique worship. They could uh, maintain their cultural values, their language, their dress, their just encourage one another with their customs and their own holidays. They could make it obvious that they disapproved of everything that was happening out there in pagan Babylonian culture and society. And they could spend their Sabbaths coming around talking about the good old days longing for Jerusalem, longing for the temple. Two options. Now, there's no point God really speaking to those that assimilate. They're kind of hard to identify. They're not part of the community. They're off doing their own thing. But for those who have withdrawn to their holy huddle, God can send them a message. And he does through Jeremiah. You may not know it, but Jeremiah is the longest book in the Old Testament. Not the most chapters... Um, Psalm, of, of course, has 150. But it has the most words. And one of the things that um, ancient literature did, and you see this sometimes in Psalms or poems, but we see it in the book of, Revelation, of, of Jeremiah as a whole, is that they put their most important message in the middle. And so it's like the first half of the book builds up to this point, and then the last half of the message can be like a so what or I told you so or what are you going to do about it kind of thing. And we find in the middle of Jeremiah a passage, a section that is unlike the rest of the book. While Jeremiah typically was a doom and gloom kind of guy in his message, warning against destruction, here in the middle of Jeremiah there is a few chapters of hope. And it's the the center of the book and ultimately the center of his message. In chapter 29, Jeremiah, still living in the ruins of Jerusalem, writes a letter to the exiles who are in Babylon. 
And here is the message that God gave him for these displaced people. These people that are adrift, who have tried to, to create an anchor for themselves by gathering together and thinking, we're going to, to be an anchor for each other. And God says, here's my message for you. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and, and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Ernest, you can put that on the screen if you like. While this sounds pretty ordinary, what great words does God have for these people displaced and living under oppression in a foreign country? Well, plant a garden, eat some food, get married. Right? That, that, that's hardly spectacular advice. You know, where's the organize a resistance movement, meet after midnight, you know, behind the clock tower and uh, plan your next strategy and I'll be with you and blow your trumpets at dawn and there's nothing like that, nothing exciting. Plan a vegetable garden and eat it. Get married. You see, think how that would sound for these people who are in this holy huddle, longing for Jerusalem. God is telling them, stop it. Stop longing for Jerusalem. Settle down where you are. Get used to what you have. Make the most of it. Don't, don't think you're going to be packing your bags in the morning and trekking back. Plant a vegetable garden and plan to eat what it is that grows on them. Marry your children. And, and then expect grandchildren. You're here for a while. And a little bit later... Jeremiah will actually say 70 years. But even then, the 70 years is not for everyone. The, the 70 years is, is some people went back. Not very many, in fact, went back to Jerusalem. Most of them stayed in Babylon. And God said, that's okay. I told you to do that. And so their thoughts of, of their identity, that we're Israelites, we belong in Israel, we worship Yahweh. We, we need to have a temple. God said, no. You can be children of God in Babylon. And in fact, most people think it was in Babylonian captivity that the, the synagogue formed that became such a vibrant part of Jewish life, certainly by the time of Jesus. But even more radical is the second half of these instructions. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Pray to the Lord for it. Think about that. This nation has been in a few wars. If this nation was on the losing side of one of those, if people were taken somewhere else around the globe and resettled, what would it be like to pray for the prosperity 
that the people who had killed your family and relo forcibly relocated you to whatever it was that you relocated, having lost that battle. That'd be hard, wouldn't it? To say, yeah, I want to pray for the peace and the prosperity of this new country or nation. I mean, that's why we have those wars, because we don't want that to happen. Pray for the peace and the prosperity, God says, of the nation that I carried you to. And so this is really at the crux of it, that Israel, the Jews, are in Babylon. Not because God is powerless, but because of the power of God that they neglected, that they turned away from, they, God himself, took them to Babylon. And now that they're there, pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you. Surely the community thought that Babylon doesn't deserve any peace or prosperity. God says their peace and prosperity, your peace and prosperity is tied to theirs. So pray for it. And so through these two instructions, we get this idea that God doesn't want his people to withdraw from society and the community in which we live. And I'll be honest with you, there are times when I look around our society and I feel like I don't belong. Maybe it's the music. Maybe it's the fashion trends. I mean, yeah, I know I'm not you know, particularly fashionable, but it, it, it's, it's just I look at things and you go, really, people want to wear that? People want to look like that? People think that's good? And, and, and you can, maybe I'm a stick in the mud, and I'm okay with that. That's who I am. But the result of that is that sometimes I feel adrift. When I look at the values of society, at the sexuality, at the sensuality, the prejudice, the disrespect, the anger that we see at times, then I say, do I, do I fit in? How do I, I, I want to belong, but does that mean I have to participate? And, and, and then am I just adrift? Where can I belong if, if these cultural movements don't connect with me? It can be hard. It can be easy to be critical of all those things. But it can be hard to belong, to feel that I have a place to call home. It would be easier to huddle in my boat and hide from the waves rather than attempting to engage that society. I think many churches do that. I think often churches face this temptation and, and individual Christians to say, well, I know society is changing, but we're just going to stay here and we're not going to interact with that. We're just going to do what we do. And we'll just keep doing it and we'll, from time to time, remember when days were better and life was simple. I know people, I've heard people say, how can Christians bring children into this world? It's too ungodly. They have no faith in the goodness of the future. But our society is no 
more ungodly than Babylon was. And God specifically told his people there to marry, to have children and grandchildren, to, to trust their future to God just as we trust our future to God, to plan for a positive future and not to be looking back. And so the example here is clear. Jeremiah tells the Jews, when you're adrift, when you're lacking anchors, drop an anchor where you are. Notice where you are. Pay attention to where you are and drop an anchor and and participate in society. Be a positive presence wherever you find yourself. Seek to influence the world without being influenced by it. Trust that God is able to preserve you in those circumstances. And even when ungodliness is predominant, pray for the peace and the prosperity of the city. I think this applies during pandemic. Because what do we do during pandemic? I think we bunker down, don't we? We get our holy huddle of one or three or however many, and, and we we keep to ourselves. We make sure we're safe and we see someone else walking around without a mask and we go, well, that's on their head, but I'm doing the right thing. And, and we, we, if something wrong happens to them, well, they probably were asking for it, but we're, we're looking after ourselves. And, and it's very easy to become very self-centered. And God says, actually, Guys, you need to seek the peace and the prosperity of your neighbors. Even when you're disoriented. Even in times of drifting. Even when you don't have a purpose to your day every day. Seek the peace and prosperity of your neighbors. Pray for them. And perhaps perhaps your prayers can make a difference in those people's lives. Ask them, how can I pray for them? Because you can't shake their hand, you can't hug them, you can't throw a football with them. But you can pray from a social distance of six feet or more. You can ask to pray for their peace and their prosperity. Perhaps the most well-known verse in Jeremiah is found in the, also in this middle section of the book. Chapter 31, verse 31 and 33. The days are coming declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. We may not, as Gentiles, completely grasp the significance of this promise, but to the Jews this would have sounded astonishing. The temple is gone. Jerusalem is gone. The promised land has gone. And, and Jeremiah has earlier written and, and called people back to covenant, back to law-keeping in order to restore their relationship with God. And now he writes to those living in exile and says, I'm going to give you a new covenant. Whoa! How do I relate to God with a new covenant? What's this new covenant? Like everything... I thought I knew one thing. Everything tangible was gone. I thought I had this one thing, this covenant, this law with God, and you're going to give me a new one? Like, that just is 
everything removed from me. And, and that's, that's tough. That, that's a big adjustment. But God says it's going to be a better one. The future of the Jews, of the Jewish nation, isn't in better law-keeping, but it's through loving God. It isn't through having the law and the, the keeping of the law imposed upon them. It's through responding to God, wanting to be like God, having his law, having his values written in their hearts, on their hearts and in their minds. That God says, I want relationship with you. I want you to keep the law because you love me and I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a new way of looking at it. Although I would suggest that it's actually the first way of looking at it. But for these people, it's a new way of looking at it. And I think, again, this is something that we can get somewhere that we can get caught out. If our focus is on restoring things rather than on relating relationship with God, and we've fallen into that same trap as these exiled Jews. If during a pandemic we say we want to restore our focus, our goal, our attention has to be on restoring worship at the building has to be on restoring corporate sin. And we put all of our energies into restoring what's familiar and what we miss and what was valuable to us. And we're neglecting our relationship with God. If, if we don't have new ways of relating to God at the end of this pandemic, and, and all we come out the other side and we go, oh, everything is restored the way that it used to be. I think we've missed the point that God's covenant is written on our hearts and on our minds. But maybe we were focused on something else. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. I don't want to steal the thunder of that talk, but it's significant that the final meal, at that final meal, Jesus told his disciples, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Jesus in that moment was pointing back to Jeremiah 31, 31. And what he was saying to his people there, his disciples gather around the table is your exile is over. You no longer need to drift. I am your anchor. Enter into relationship with God through me. Love your neighbor as I have loved. Jesus brings peace and prosperity to the world. He says, likewise, you go make the world a better place. Write this. Write me and all I've done for you in your mind and on your heart. This is a new covenant. And so as we navigate through uncertain times, make a commitment not to retreat into a critical spirit of pointing out the wrongs of those around us. And don't despair that God is still in control. Instead, commit to spending time with God. 
pray, not just for yourself and those in your immediate circle. Expand your circle. Pray for the peace and the prosperity of your city, of your neighbors, of your suburb, of your town. And in this way, we live up to our mission as people of God. Yes, we're adrift. Yes, we're in unfamiliar territory. But God gives us an anchor. He is our anchor. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now.